Holy Spirit, Lord of light, from the clear celestial height, thy pure beaming radiance give. Come, thou Father of the poor, come with treasures which endure, come, thou light of all that live. Thou of all consolers best, Thou the soul's delightful guest, Dost refreshing peace bestow. Thou in toil art comfort sweet, Pleasant coolness in the heat, Solace in the midst of woe. Light immortal, light divine, visit thou these hearts of thine, and our inmost being fill. If thou take thou grace away, nothing pure in man would stay, all his good is turned to ill. Heal our wounds, our strength renew, on our dryness pour thy dew, wash the stains of guilt away. Bend the stubborn heart and will, melt the frozen, warm the chill, guide the steps that go astray. Thou on us who evermore Thee confess and Thee adore, With Thy sevenfold gifts descend. Give us comfort when we die, Give us life with Thee on high, Give us joys that never end. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. Glory to you, O Lord. In the evening of the first day of the week, the doors were closed in the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. He said to them, Peace be with you, and showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord, and he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. For those whose sins you retain, they are retained. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Over the course of Easter, I'd been wishing people on consecutive Sundays, Happy Easter, and I think they got sick of hearing it. They stopped responding. <laughs> today, Eastertide comes to a close, and so I can say Happy Birthday, because today is, of course, the birthday of the church. Even though the church existed as soon as Jesus gathered a following around him, even though the church was already sort of prefigured in the people of Israel, the church comes to birth now. In fact, we have that beautiful image from the church fathers that... As Eve was taken from Adam's side, the church is taken from the sleeping side of Christ on the cross. It pours out literally from where he's pierced in blood and water, the sacraments, baptism and, and the Eucharist. This is the church. This is us. 
fed uh, and nourished by him who, who lives and who reigns. Um, all of this stuff, Easter and the birthday of the church and the spirit among us, all this stuff, I, I'm always conscious, it must seem quite kooky to those who are not familiar with, let's say, the language of faith. It's just a kind of strange, frivolous, you know, airy-fairy thing that, yeah, sure, that's good for them. We don't really need it. <laughs> and, and okay, if that's the way it seems. Um, but we need the Spirit to give us language to communicate something that hasn't hit home. I was thinking to myself, if we were to um, put to the side for just a brief moment all of our religious imagination, all of our language, all of our ideas, all, of, all the catechesis we've received, as precious as it is to us, if we were to put it to, to the side for a second in an attempt to empathize with those who are not familiar with this language, and it might be people who are closer to us than really <laughs> is... It might be the closest people, you know, our own children, our own grandchildren, our own colleagues and our friends and our, our loved ones. Um, if we leave this jargon to the side for a second, what is our common hope and aspiration? What is it that we wish for our children, our grandchildren? What is it that we wish upon strangers that we meet in the street? I'd venture a guess that our hopes and theirs, being a, a singular thing, are very, very simple. The hopes that we have for our kids, for example, let's pretend that there is no faith practice per se, and, and we might say, well, um, that's them on their journey, but as long as, and then there's, there's a long line of things that we list off, what are those things? Just think about that for a second, and feel free to, to tell me, what do we hope, even if explicit religiosity is not manifest? What do we hope? What are our good, genuine hopes for our loved ones, for our young ones, for, our, um, for those who are coming to the eventide and, and even approaching death? Um, we could say a whole number of things, and, and please feel free to interrupt me because I never mind being interrupted. But I think the long and short of what we'd say is we would hope that the integrity of their life would earn them a kind of enduring peace and joy and happiness and fruitfulness. Um, that the integrity of their life, that they would essentially know good from wrong and they'd essentially choose good rather than ill. That they'd essentially have a sense of justice and they'd employ themselves to, you know, fulfill that justice, giving people their due respect, their due honor, their due rights, um, safeguarding their own due. Um, in whatever vague concept of God they have, even giving God God's due in some vague manner. Um, we hope that they wouldn't be slave to any number of things we can be enslaved to in this world. There's a whole lot of goods in the world. When God created everything, he looked at it all and he said, that's pretty neat. <laughs> that is good. In other words, it resembles me. But none of them are God and therefore we would hope that none of them becomes let's say an addiction that possesses those that we love. They come to binge on those things that are temporally good, but are not eternally good. Um, they don't become slave to substance or to experience or to whatever, you know? These are universal hopes for our loved ones. Here's the cool thing though. The most primal hopes that you have 
for your loved ones. The most primal hopes I imagine that they have for themselves, if they have the clarity of mind to articulate them. This is essentially the hopes that God has for you. Why else did they end up in your heart? You had a heart, like your heart was made by someone, and, and therefore the hopes that well up in there are divinely inspired. They have God's fingerprint on them. Um, we strive to live a certain life naturally, and then the Holy Spirit, who we hear about in today's readings, comes and elevates those basic strivings, those basic human um, efforts that we have. This is the relationship between the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the virtues of any human life. This has been a bit of a watershed for me as I've been looking at the gifts of the Spirit the last week. I've been going through slowly and sort of wading through them and looking at the Catechism and looking at Thomas Aquinas and um, finding how, how richly beautiful and how simple they are. They're so simple. I, I remember... Um, we were lucky, I didn't have this lecturer when I was in the seminary, but apparently there was um, a, a nun, a famous lovely nun, who said, um, oh, if Jesus played the violin, he'd be the best violinist in the world. If Jesus was a gymnast, he'd be the best gymnast in the world. And it's like, that's, that's not true. And, and the reason is because being a gymnast is not essential to being human. Okay? Being a violinist is not essential to being human. But you know what is essential? These seven things right here, having charity in your heart, that's essential to being human. If your heart is void of charity, you start to become literally inhumane. You start to lack in the basic, the basic goodness of what a human is. So charity, faith, hope, these are theological virtues. So let's put them along with our jargon for a second. But they're, but they're basic to what the human is. In the image and likeness of God. What else then? Prudence. Prudence is seeing right from wrong and having a sense of how to navigate towards the right and having a sense of how to steer away from the wrong or the ill. Fortitude, which is courage. All of us from time to time are going to have to roll up our sleeves and grit our teeth and brave that which is pretty unpleasant for the sake of the good. Does it mean we go looking for trouble like little Simba in The Lion King? No, because it's not about looking for packs of hyenas to test my bravery. It's about knowing what's good and standing strong, come what may. Justice, we already mentioned, giving God and our neighbour their due. And finally, temperance, not binging on every good thing we find, but understanding that there's a certain rhyme and rhythm to life. There's an order that, that's in place. And temperance allows me to walk with a kind of balance through life to enjoy the good and, and to not be knocked off kilter by it. Um, these are the virtues, the cardinal and the theological virtues. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit perfects these virtues and elevates them to something divine. And we see this in the life of Jesus. In fact, we see it instantaneously because Jesus didn't have to grow in virtue like we do. Jesus' nature was, had a perfect integrity to it. Um, Jesus is not the best violinist in the world, but he is perfectly prudent, perfectly temperate, perfectly just, perfectly um, courageous. And, and therefore, these are things that we can imitate as we look to Jesus. 
These are things that we need to cultivate in ourselves so that when this Holy Spirit falls on us, those basic human efforts are elevated into the gifts of the Spirit. Now listen to this. Prudence allows me at a basic level to see right from wrong, to choose right. When the Holy Spirit falls upon my prudence, the Spirit elevates it into what we call the gift of counsel. Now with a kind of divine prompting, with a docility to the mind and the eye of God, I can see, let's say, eternal goods and eternal ills. And I can avoid eternal ills. And I can stay on the straight and narrow of the road that is Christ himself. He says, I'm the way. We walk on him as he lays himself before us. Um, Justice, as we've already said, allows me to give people their due. When the Holy Spirit falls on my justice, the Holy Spirit uh, elevates that into what we call piety or reverence. Sometimes when we see people acting pious, you know, like, oh, that's just piety. It's, it's kind of like a sickly sweet candy cane, isn't it? But that's not what piety is. Piety is the fulfillment of justice. Giving our neighbor their due, sure, and giving God God's due, which is what we're doing. <laughs> sacramentally, religiously. This is part of the just um, due that God deserves. And we're rendering it to him as best we can. This is, in fact, a gift of the Holy Spirit at work in us. It's wonderful. I'll say just one more because these, there's a lot to say here and I, don't, I can't say it all. Um, but the last I'd say, I said this last night in Calliope, is fortitude, courage. As I said, we're all going to have to exercise some degree of courage through the day today. In fact, to some degree, even getting up and having a coffee and putting on our work clothes and getting out into the, into the day takes courage. We know we have to do that, uh, even though we might like not to. Um, maybe I'm just talking to myself here. What happens when the Holy Spirit falls on our human fortitude? Well, the Spirit raises it into divine fortitude. What's that? I think we see it most perfectly in the lives of the martyrs. The martyrs were resolute in their relationship with God, in their proclamation of the truth, in whatever it was that they were confronting in their culture, in their time and place, that was abhorrent to the mind of God, and they knew it. And so they stood strong. Sometimes we look at the martyrs and we say, oh, I could never have, I could never have courage like that. I'd be too afraid. And the beautiful thing is, yeah, so were they. So couldn't they brave such things. Because it wasn't just human bravery that got them through. It was, let's say, the rich soil of their virtue of courage, their love for the good, their desire to hold strong, elevated by divine grace. The martyrs are witness to divine grace at work in a person, to divine fortitude, holding strong, even in the face of certain torture and death. Like in the face of certain death, any ordinary person would... Turn around and walk away. Oh, I'll die on a different hill. But divine fortitude allows us to even conquer death itself. Death death by death is overrun, we we say in Jesus about the the passion and and his resurrection. So I want us I want to invite us to pray for the gifts uh, sorry, to pray for the fruits of the Spirit. No, it is the gifts. To pray for the gifts of the Spirit. I was thinking about this little thing that Helen stuck up here, the gifts over here. It, it dawned on me, as I, shared, as I said, this was a kind of watershed moment for me to explore this, because 
I know that in my life, like a, like a fool, I've been watering the fruit. You know, Oh, there's love in my life. There's generosity. There's kindness. Watering the fruit. Any rational farmer knows that you don't water the fruit of a plant. You water the, the soil, right? Um, let's say that fruit is meant to burst forth in our life. It bursts forth when the Spirit comes with His sevenfold gifts and makes us fruitful, but the Spirit Himself is falling upon good soil, a tree planted in good soil, putting its roots down deep, being nourished by the life that God gives us, participating with everything that God gives us, willingly, um, even zealously. That's, that's the whole dynamic. So suddenly my attention has gone from the fruit, which in a, in a way is none of my business, to the ground that I'm planted in. What do I have to do to be faithful to becoming, to the best of my ability, a good tree? I'll give one last analogy because what we're talking about here is really one of our iconically Catholic positions that we take on virtue and grace and salvation and, and how that works out, how we have to participate and work with what God is giving us. Um, God doesn't save us by magic. God doesn't render us holy with a zap of his, of his fingers. Could he do that? Yeah, sure, he's God. God can do whatever God likes. But God instead invites us to, to somehow mature into a relationship with him. Just like every person we know who loves us. Like what person who we know loves us does every single little thing for us, does all the thinking for us, does all of that? Does anyone? No. If you love your kids, is that the Holy Spirit? Yeah. <laughs> I hope not, because he left. <laughs> um, if you love your kids, the last thing you do is pander every single need and women become their, their slave. Rather, you would invite them at, at every opportunity almost to grow in grace, to grow in their ability to exercise um, their innate goodness and, and, and gift. This is a Catholic understanding of, of how we grow in virtue and become like God. The, the age-old temptation that the devil gave to Adam and Eve, it was only tempting because it's in fact what we're made for, to be one with God, to walk with him as beloved children, as, as co-heirs with Christ, in a weird irony as kind of equals with him, even though he's God and we're not, and we never could be. But we're drawn so deep into that life that we really do walk in lockstep with him. He really does look at us as if we were as precious as preciousness could be. And he's God, like he knows what precious is. So, so as we approach the Eucharist now, see in this act that we're about to carry out, a pious act, a just act, it is right and just at all times to render this praise to God. See in this act a microcosm of what we're doing. We don't come to mass empty-handed. We bring at the very least ourselves. We bring our hearts with their grief and their joys and their sorrows. We bring our work that we've toiled and sweated with throughout the week, throughout the year, throughout our lives. We bring that to the altar and we ask God, fall upon this. Take it up. Take it up and raise it to the greatest dignity that a gift ever could have. The bread that we bring to the altar, God didn't zap it into existence. God gave us the earth and then he invited us to plant and to till and to grow and to harvest 
and to um, grind into flour and to knead into a dough and then to wait for it to rise and then to put it in the oven and then to wait for it to bake. In other words, a whole lot of work has gone into receiving and working with God's gifts. The Eucharistic life is really about a humble exchange of gifts between us and God. The first gift comes from God, but then it's like a tennis master who can outdo the other. Let's give God our very best. Let's keep the game going. Let's be truly Eucharistic people in this moment and for all our lives. And let's call the Holy Spirit to come and give us the grace and the strength to be like Jesus now and for eternity.